Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I've got an extra special guest, Mr. Mike Bristow, the CEO and co-founder of Crowd Property, a specialist development lender that has grown up to a loan book of now 372 million over the last seven years. So welcome, Mike. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Rod. I've always thought this this show is brilliantly branded as the Rodcast. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be here. The, The creative juices were really flowing the day we thought of the name. (laughs) <laughs> so Mike do you want to give us a bit of background about about yourself about crowd property and what you did previous to that maybe in in, in terms of finance and property and career sure I mean I, I gone about that for some time I'll try and be uh, fairly concise about it so I, I I did a quant degree at university in mechanical engineering which is sort of applied maths degree basically whilst I was at university I, I founded grew and sold my first business and mm-hmm. then it was it was a business called Vodbol UK uh, which basically sold vodka vodka and Red Bull too cheap to students got them too drunk we scaled it throughout the UK and it, it was a massive hit really entertaining so much fun doing it I spent a lot of my university time uh, traveling around the country running that playing sport around the country at different universities and things and uh, and 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 all, all alongside a fairly intense actually it's one of those annoying courses at university where you actually have to turn up to sort of 20, 25 hours worth of lectures. I, I, I clearly picked yeah. that very badly. You, you founded, started and exited. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Yep. So that and, was- and, and, that, and that still exists today. Oh. It was very, re- very recently had its 23rd birthday, which, which people amongst you will, will quickly date me and age me. But uh, yes, so I, I mean, that's, that's the cool thing, right? You build something, you grow a brand, you create yeah. a brand you establish it in the psyche of your target market and and it lasts 20 plus years after you after you founded it and that's that's great because the buyer who, who's actually a pers- personal friend as well now you know they, they've, they've got their money back in, in spades yeah. um and um that's great and what a what an amazing kind of um lesson for you in terms of growing businesses and, and being able to actually go straight from founding someone something to growing it and and exiting it as well at such a young age so wow brilliant so that was fun that was great fun right and uh, but the but the next step was i i knew off the back of that that i would at some point found another business create something and and see what what happens again but but i knew that i needed to learn a lot so i went into strategy consulting as a strategy piece of management consultancy and and why did i do that because i i, I looked at the various options open and i felt that in consulting you can go across you can work in loads of different sectors you walk through the doors of many many different companies um some great some bad some in a great position some in not so great position different questions around whether it's cost restructuring or, or emerging market growth or, or 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 strategic competitive advantage and how to build that and mm-hmm. over over 15 16 17 years did that for big strategy consulting firms um did that with many many different companies 
very, very different sectors um, and, and, and really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it because I, I, I saw a hell of a lot and learned a hell of a lot. Um, and, you know, it was that period. And, and, and actually, so, yeah, so part of that was with major strategy consulting firms. And then after my MBA, uh, which I did in 2009, I, I did a lot more directly with the private equity firms who are buying businesses and growing the businesses that I'd worked with before yeah. so that I could start doing other things in my sort of plural career, which was buy property and invest in prop tech businesses and look for the next thing to do. And, and had you always, when you went into the management consultancy stuff, had you always kind of envisaged that actually you, you were doing it to gain experience for when you would be either investing in to businesses or starting your own one or was it more so you just wanted that career it was 100 percent sort of the former i was committed to the career in it but what i felt was it was an incredible schooling yeah to see so many different things and then you can say you know i you know i and i won't mind fast forward uh, entirely but for example you know i gave a presentation to my team the other day the team of crowd property 55 of us okay that was thinking, how do we think more like a consumer business? And bringing in a load of the research that I had done historically and worked with consumer businesses and, what, and, and how private equity companies look at consumer businesses and how we apply those principles from different sectors into the, the business we're doing in development finance in a way that nobody else in the sector thinks like, like that. And that's what I'm trying to really bring to both the team and to the business and you know, so it was, it's kind of, it's a fun, you know, consulting career is tough, right? I, I, I remember going through, you know, long periods of time where the sleep that I got in the taxi and the way home at 2 a.m. was a material part of my sleep. Right? Was, was that because um, of the, the old vodka? You know, and, and, and that, that was, you know, it was really tough. Well, I mean, the number of presentations I did to really, really smart private equity owners of businesses, having been in the office for 36 hours, right? You know, it, I wasn't on top form, but it was, it was intense. And that is an intense training ground on so many different dimensions. I, I, I'm, I'm quite jealous, really, because I, that's something I should have done is go into business um, with, with other people or for other people. And I didn't. I kind of muddled my way through starting, scaling and sometimes exiting and sometimes not things go so well. And actually, I, 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 th I always kind of look back on that thinking, God, if I had my time again, I'd, I'd love... I'd really want to go into business to see how it was to pick up a lot of information and experience and things. So it sounds like it was really invaluable. Yeah. And you've got exactly that mindset, right? The inquisitive data led, uh, really some sharp sort of mindset that, that, that would, have, would have adapted incredibly well there. And, uh, but, uh, you, you know, it's, uh, you certainly, certainly haven't done a bad job at what you've been working on, right? I'll have, so I'll, have to tell the, I'll have to tell the kids that's what they're going to have to do. <laughs> but, so, so how then did Crowd Property come about? So, so as I was doing more and more stuff, so, so I, I, I've been investing in property since 2002. Um, and is, is that and yourself um, for investment properties or, I don't know, your own homes or commercial? Yeah, investment residential property you know, right. i saw i saw from very early on it was an interesting asset class it was a yielding asset class it had the potential you know certainly being undersupplied it had the potential on the supply demand 
places to grow. You know, the, the, the leverage model is, is, is fascinating. So I looked at it quite quant quantitatively, um, as I do with most things, and, and said, well, look, you know, that asset class makes sense. I can understand it. I can touch it. I feel it. It's real. Um, so I started build, building a portfolio, and, and, and it's a reasonably sized portfolio now. And one thing I'd always been fascinated about was the inefficiency uh, of, of the real estate asset class. Um, and also how, how pitifully technology had been applied to the asset class. You know, and we're talking way back 2002, you know, yeah. the, the Foxton's website in 2000, whatever. And when that launch was groundbreaking, it was like, you know, it was just a map. So, so uh, uh, you know, that was pre-right movement, super but, but, you know, the, 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 I've always been fascinated by the potential that technology has in... Uh, in a in a in a physical in that physical asset class is underutilized, which is human intensive, uh, workflow intensive to to, to to operate. So, so in about in about 2012, 2013, I started looking into what the, the, the sector hadn't really been coined then, the prop tech sector. I don't think prop and tech had really been put together. And I started investing in some very early stage startups that are saying, "Hey, look, this is." You know, I'm not sure even if fintech really existed then either, but, but, but this is sort of, you know, this has so much potential in such a large asset class. <clears throat> and I bought into that and, and, and started investing in, in, in prop tech businesses that were solving some of these problems. And, and early on, it was fairly rudimentary ideas, right, with, with, with some fairly rudimentary technology. And, and just on, on sorry, that, like, so because it was quite early on, I guess the whole, th well, to me anyway, and, and I am a bit of a technophobe. I appreciate how useful it is, but I'm, I'm no good at anything to do with it, really, to be honest. It's hard enough for me to, to get the sound equipment going on the, on, the, on the rock. But when I think of anything kind of technology-led, for me, it's about reducing friction in a business or reducing, reducing that friction in the customer journey or anything like that. And so when you were investing in these kind of early-stage tech products or, or businesses, what what were the kind of main friction points that you were trying to level out, or or, or the problems that you, you could you could easily see that could that you just thought, do you know what these these don't need to be here, and there's an easy way out of this. Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so I I think the first piece right was underutilization of assets. Right. So one of my early investments was a, a commercial office sort of marketplace business. It's called Hubble now. And, and, and I invested in that actually alongside now the CEO of a venture capital fund that I actually work with quite closely. Um, and, 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 you know, that was solving a problem to say, it's very inefficient to find real office real estate. And, and there was so much old school brokers on hitting the phones and, and all of this. And it's like, it didn't look like, you know, what eventually turned out to be, you know, a, 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 a right move portal or a, or a, or a, you know, or a, you know, the extreme, you know, utilization solver is probably something like Uber. Um, you know, that's the problem that Uber cracked. Um, was tax utilization. So, so I think that was number one. And then number, number two was an availability in organization. And one of my very early investments was, was Land Insight, Land Tech, that, that I've, you know, 
I and we as a private as high labs, the venture capital fund had had quite a big exit on that quite recently, and that's a brilliant. And then and then the third is 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 sort of workflow workflow efficiency, and there are businesses which organise a lot of facilities management activity around commercial real estate like that that basically make everything more efficient. So, you know, the crucial thing with any sort of whether it's fintech, prop tech, ed tech, you know, reg tech, you know, all of these sort of techs, right? it's very easy to sort of confuse the the point of everything it's not the tech doesn't lead the tech enables yeah right? it's it's still a customer proposition right that people want to interact with that solves some pains right and therefore if it's solving some pains people are willing to pay for it right you know it's it's fundamentals you know it's head out to consumer goods you know you know Arguably, someone like Gillette made, made, made better razors than others, and therefore, you know, it sold more, right? And grew into a mega brand. But even a mega brand like that still gets disrupted by Harry's or, you know, different subscription model and things like that. And Harry's will probably call itself a tech business as well as a subscription model, but it's just a razor business, right? But it's, but it's, it's fulfilled in a more efficient and better uh, way as well as a product element. Well, do, you think, do you think, I mean, in those kind of things, how important do you think brand is? So for something like Harry's versus Gillette, I would say it's really important, but m- maybe going on to more of the prop tech side, how, how important do you think brand is there? So a really interesting question. So, you know, things like sort of there's lots of intangible value in, in, in the brand. And the, in, in prop tech, there's a lot, it depends on the market quite a lot. Okay. I think, Business to consumer businesses generally, you know, play, are, are, have greater importance on brand, right? Uh, in, it, how, do, how do individuals as humans relate to those brands and the purpose of those brands and the identity of those brands and buy into that, those values, uh, the principles and, 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 and the propositions? These pure business to business brands are different to that you know uh, a hewlett packard packard selling lots of pcs to you know accenture or something yeah. right you know it's it's it that is not that is a that is a more that's a less emotional less intangible more tangible product-based features you know brand it's is still more, it's more performance and results driven at the end of the day for the buyer yeah okay wouldn't and, it? Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's more rational, less, but, but, but there is still a, an element of emotion. You know, there was that amazing phrase many years ago that sort of nobody ever got fired for buying IBM, right? Uh, because, you know, and, and, it, and it was sort of like a statement around how incumbents still have strength, right? Because you're not taking a risk by going with a disruptor, right? But there's so much disruption and so much challenge to, 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 to major players now. And part of that is because they, you, you know, they're circumventing legacy systems and their technology stacks and their ability to serve. And also, do you uh, think it's about the ease of which it is to gather data now as well, which, which kind of speeds everything up and, and, and yeah. allows routes to market much quicker than maybe they were before? Yeah, you, you don't need to have the budget to have TV ads, right, to build a consumer brand Right, there's you know, there's the influencer marketing and social media, etc. etc. Now, the really interesting so, so, and, and how that applies to prop tech really depends on that sort of target market, right? And and and, and some areas are, are sort of more important. The really interesting thing for me is 
you can take quite an extreme approach and say, right, you know, us as consumers buying stuff on the shelves of Sainsbury's, right? Or if we worked at big companies making rational decisions about, you know, service suppliers and hardware suppliers and things like that. Actually, I think there's a really interesting thing to bring this into property, right? There is a huge base of property investors and property developers, you know, the whole small ecosystem of entrepreneurial, brilliantly passionate, brilliantly creative uh, people in the sector that actually behave quite like C, right? Quite like consumers in their buying habits, right? Um, and, and are somewhat more emotional as well. And I think brand is more important than, so whilst it's technically a, you know, business for business sell or whatever, thing it is we're actually small businesses with with you know typically investment businesses or small development businesses are one to three directors yep. not much on a staff quite shallow businesses right contract out a load of stuff buy stuff asset asset focused you know put the leverage behind it etc but we will uh, interact with things as humans uh, more than business entities and i think that's really interesting and so and and and, and the other thing is we've probably seen a, a lot in you know, fintech, we see some very, very strong consumer brands and sort of the Starlings, the Monzos and Revoluts and things like that. But ultimately, you know, uh, B2C customers. Uh, there's, there's a reasonable amount of it in PropTech, but, but it, you know, it is still a, you know, PropTech is really serving businesses. Um, although what you see is probably slightly more progressive brands. You know, you know Hubble is quite a consumer-y type brand. And that's similar across other things like Antec and, um, and, and, and Air Sorted, for example, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, is now, which is now housed, which I was a seed investor in again. And, and because they, they said, well, look, there's efficiencies in service accommodation that we can bring to that market and take all the pain away of like sheets and whatever. I guess there's efficiencies to be had in any industry where, I don't know, that, that I, I'm going to give cliches here, but where there's lots of moving parts and there's lots of different aspects to it. So where you've got a hospitality business, which I guess is what a lot of these short-term lets are, anywhere where you've got labour, needed so things like you've got your cleaning team you've got you've got someone to let some them in you've got someone to do the bookings anywhere where there's been a historical aspect of labor it's how can you make that more efficient and to a point maybe cut out some of those labors so instead of having someone to meet there's electronic entry systems and and these kind of things yeah Hi everyone, I just wanted to quickly cut in with a message from our fantastic sponsor, Brickflow. For most property developers, obtaining development finance for their project is not something they look forward to. There are dozens of lenders, but most developers only know a few well enough to approach. Every lender will offer a different loan size and loan price on each project. And by only approaching a handful of lenders, we all know there's almost zero chance of getting the best loan. But getting quotes from every lender would take weeks and months. Brickflow is the UK's first comparison site for development finance, designed to save you time and money. In the same way most people search for their car insurance, Brickflow allows developers to compare more than 30 of the UK's best development lenders in seconds. Brickflow filters out the lenders that are less likely to lend to you and just leave the ones that should. They organise them in a clear way, providing estimates of what each lender will lend and at what price. Applying couldn't be simpler. There is one application process for all of our lenders. 
Build your project appraisal on the platform and select which lenders you would like to approach. Lenders get a clear and precise presentation about you and your project, allowing them to make quick and reliable decisions. They submit their best bid for your project and you decide which lender you want to work with. The whole process is quicker, easier and lets you concentrate on the things you're best at. Brickflow. Development financing clicks, not weeks. Search brickflow.com today. Let's get back to the show. So, like, what is good and what is bad about the cleaning provision sector in London? That's where we started, right? It's, it, you know, these things are good. These things are really important and they're compromised by the current model. Uh, how can I bring that? How can I make that super efficient to create value so that it just doesn't cost loads more? It's actually very passive cost, but much more efficient and easier. That's really interesting. And I think. You know, that's a good example of where it's, 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 it's utilization, it's logistics, it's, it's money flows, it's all of these things. And this is what a lot of... And then, so, so I started looking at, at that, started investing in various businesses. I'm investing in sort of 25 plus directly and then also involved in you know, Pilabs, the, 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 the venture capital funds. So I sit on what's called the investment committee. So I, I vote on every uh, business that we invest in as a venture capital fund I'm, I'm, and I'm an LP or... A, the reason I say that is that that's sort of my, my sort of non-exec type job. Yeah. But, but it's like, this is, you know, I absolutely adore it. Because I'm seeing some of the best global technology applications in real estate. Right? Some of the sort of the AI construction tech we're seeing at the moment is just really cool. Like warehouse robotics and management systems and all of these sort of things. Right? And... And, you know, all solving fundamental pains. And, and, and this sort of passion led me down the route of exploring and saying, what else is broken? Right? And, and three of us got together and we said, do you know what? We've all felt the right? It is a pain in the ass raising finance for our property development projects. Right? Lots of reasons. Right? Big banks, monkeys about small developments. Big banks who take an ivory tower, big stick approach, um, that don't have any expertise, they just know how to move money around. And you know, and, and, and I and I can assert this for the vast majority of financial services, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's not built around customer. No. Uh, based on real fundamental understanding of the customer. Well, I mean, try uh, setting up a bank account with a high street bank at the moment, <laughs> and then you really realise it's not about the customer. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? It's utterly incredible. And that's as a personal bank. Oh, we'll be here all day kind of complaining about, <laughs> yeah, the retail banks. And, yeah. And, and, and that's exactly right. And, and, you know, there's... And, and, and everything can be done better. A lot can be done better with technology, but a lot can be done better with proposition design, right? And really sort of thinking about the things. Would, would you, do you think it's fair then to say, because what we see is we see a lot of kind of entrepreneurial lenders or, or, or finance companies start up with the aim of going, do you know what, we're going to be customer centric. We're going to put the customer first. And they do a really good job of it. And because they do a really good job of it, they scale quickly. And because they scale quickly, suddenly it's not sustainable to still give that level of service without changing the business quite 
considerably and they end up turning into the beast that they were trying to avoid, which is one of these tick box side banks. I mean, what, how, yeah. how can you avoid doing that? I guess is the question. I, I, it, well, I think it's a great question. I think, I think a few of the things are different. Right? Um, so first and foremost, um, you know, incumbent businesses, especially banks, large financial institutions have a real pain of legacy IT systems. And today's technology architecture is like so the NHS nimble. spending billions on a computer uh, they didn't use. Yeah, prime example. It, 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 exactly, exactly. So, so, so one thing is always, you know, building nimble tech, right? I, I, you know, we've shifted the architecture of our technology a number of times. Um, you know, to make sure that we can um, adapt and, and evolve as quickly as possible and remain nimble with, uh, with the service offering. That's really important. A quarter of our team of 55 are software engineers and that, that technology build is, is absolutely core. So that's sort of first and foremost. Secondly, there is enormous, you know, there's in, there are really challenging scaling pains, growing pains in, in businesses. And, and we probably felt that most extremely moving from sort of 15, 20 people to 35, 40 people. Right? That, that period was, we were changing a lot. The human interactions in the team were, were shifting a lot. We were going through... Uh, big expansion in the, in the customer base is a massive, massive challenge, right? And and you have to be right on it in terms of you know, and and, and the whole thing changes, right? But suddenly, people people that are in your team and you are fifteen to twenty sized, right? You know, they were more generalists, right? But when you're thirty five, you need more specialists, right? Yeah. It, it, it changes the, you know, it, it can change the fundamental makeup of the team, structure of the team, culture of the team, right? And that is challenging because that's people. And just just before we kind of get on to the challenges of scaling, which we we absolutely will do, in terms of kind of when you started out with crowd property, which is obviously a, a specialist development lender, originally. It, it kind of followed that, um, or correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to follow that business model of, I guess, trying to attract your retail customers to then invest into the crowd to then invest out to developers. You seem to have shifted now, whereby you're actually, you've gone from that business to customer to business to business, and now you're getting more credit lines from more institutional investors rather than individuals. What at what point did that kind of how did that come about and why? It, it's, it's exactly right. It's really interesting. So there's a couple of points here. So firstly, um, I, I also used to work with one of the founders of Funding Circle, one of the three founders, um, who basically 2007, eight, nine, and they really hit their sort of you know their, their flying mode in 2009 post post global financial crisis. And that was a peer to peer lending. Right? The, the, the genesis of funding circles, as was the genesis of, of crowd property, was let's disintermediate everything. And, right? and was, was that, sorry to cut in, but was that because you felt that one of the problems you wanted to solve was allowing retail investors to invest into property in small bits and things? Or was it just that was a 
sensible way at the time to get credit or was it a bit of so both so both funding circle and crowd property were founded off the basis of the supply of capital to either SME businesses or smaller medium-sized developers was flawed. The model wasn't good enough, the lenders weren't good enough, they weren't serving the customer needs, right? The challenge is when you set up a lender, you, you, you've got to get some capital, yeah. right? And, 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 you know, the peer-to-peer lending model was evolving and, and that, you know, comes with a responsibility, a regulated, FCA regulated responsibility to protect that capital really well and secure it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? But you can't get a funding line of 100, 200, 300 plus million, you know, without having lent a penny in your life, right? Because you, you don't have the track record. So you've got, to, you've got to prove the concept before you scale. Yeah, and, and so, and, and we spent probably three years early on three and a bit years saying right let's prove the relevance of our proposition on the borrower side let's prove that we can secure that and 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 you're only a lender if you get the money back <laughs> otherwise you're a charity without a cause and guess what in the uk and anywhere small and medium-sized developers are not the most popular charity right yeah, yeah. um <laughs> So, 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 you know, by, by being really robust in what we selected to lend to, and probably, you, you know, we were funding 1%, 2%, 3% of everything we saw, right? To be robust, prove ourselves, right? So over, over many years, we've proved ourselves on, on the investment side, right? Now, interestingly, interestingly, because if you think about it, ultimately by a person, right? You know, even, you know, you know, whatever Amazon is worth is ultimately owned by shareholders that are probably pension funds that are, are in capital that then are owned by, by a person. Right? So all money goes back to a person. Right? And, and if you think about it, you know, a number of years ago, I'd say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if, if they say my mother wanted to invest in, in or put some money into some investments, right? And my mother is not a sophisticated investor. Um, she would she would go to an IFA. Say, for example, well, yeah, one of my mother's pounds ended up with a developer, right? This is the route. This is one of many routes, right? She would go to an IFA. That IFA would say, put some money into this big fund, right? That big fund would say, I need some allocation to property, right? So I'm going to put some of my big fund into this separate property fund, that property fund would go and find a property development broker and that property development broker would find some developers, right? And my mother's one pound would go to the developer, right? And go back, right, through all of those parties, right? Who, who it's a market economy. They can exist. They've got costs. They need to make a profit to exist, right? And, and, and whatever the developer pays, my mother doesn't see, right? So if you think about it, this takes out all of that. It's, it's totally disruptive. It, it, it opens up an asset class that was never previously accessible by individuals. Yeah. Now, it wasn't the driving force behind our model, but it was a beautifully disruptive way that we could uh, grow the whole thing is over many years, never lost a penny of capital, never lost a penny of interest. By the way, asterisks, past performance is not an indicator of future success and, and your capital is at risk, right? But 
but because of the track record we built up over over hundreds of millions of pounds worth, right? now I'm getting cold calls by make global asset managers and institutions saying, "You guys are good at what you do. How do I put my money in brackets? And am I am are there money is someone else's that could have gone direct or something? But but it's it's so it's it's actually being reintermediated." by scale capital. And if you look at the sector as a whole, like funding cycle involved, you know, a fraction, well not uh, at the moment, they're all lending under the lending schemes, yeah, which is all institutional capital, right? And, and so, so actually, you know, now the majority of our capital is institutions across a number of different institutions, and I'm always talking to more now, as I say, they're cold calling me, which I tell you what, the tables have turned sort of from three or four years ago when I was cold calling them. Well, um, and, and uh, probably, I mean, not, Obviously, you've done a fantastic job, but again, a time in the market where capital is trying to find a home and there's this kind of rush for yield everywhere and, and things like that. How do you, you've done very well in order to, to get to that position. How do you think it would be at a time in the market, maybe where there's not so much liquidity out there? And would you ever think of going back to maybe those individual uh, retail customers on mass, if if you felt that you know what liquidity in the market is starting to dry up, or do you think now the way the business is, it's, it's maybe not worth doing that? The, 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 the fundamental here, and one of the one of the frustrations. So, 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 I've always talked about the importance of diverse source of capital behind the lender, right? And 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 I've always banged on about it, said it's important. I didn't. I didn't ask for a global pandemic to prove my point, but the global pandemic proved my point, right? There are a load of lenders out there that have a single wholesale line of capital, and that single wholesale line of capital, some of those <coughs> separate in their book, mm-hmm. they had equity exposure and debt exposure. And the equity got hyper volatile during, you know, relative for emerged for developed markets in, in the sort of February, March, April, May 2020, right? So guess what they did? They said just pause on the debt book as well, right? So suddenly offers were getting revoked, right? Even drawdowns on projects were getting refused, not for the fault of the project. This almost started sounding like RBS repossessing and fire selling like they did in 2009. Fortunately, there wasn't the associated credit crunch and and, 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 and they were able to uh, reboot on that. But we were lending through us. Okay, and why? Because we had multiple institutions and thousands and thousands of private investors. The mix didn't change that much, actually. But we had many minds, many decision makers, et cetera, to say, actually, yeah, I'm either in or I'm out. And we saw many, many uh, different parties, you know, be more in or, or, or say, actually, I'm going to pause as well. Yeah. Right? So, so fundamentally in our, in our strategy, we have a strategy of diverse source of capital. I'm building out more and more institutional capital lines into, into the business because that drives reliability of funding. And what is the, uh, you know, Fundamentally, in property, you need speed and certainty of finance or, or transactions, or, or because that's what you're trying to demonstrate to your vendors. We provide that speed, ease, and certainty of capital, as long as other things like transparency and expertise um, as well. But fundamentally, that certainty comes from diverse sources of capital. And it, I mean, it goes for any sort of investment led property business as well, if you've got leverage. I mean, 
it's a risk you don't get paid for going with one lender and and unless it's unless it's a case where you can't get lending anywhere else i just i just don't see the benefit of it even if it's kind of saving you one or two basis points i i just find that that the potential downside far exceeds the potential upside from from doing that and, and you know fundamentally it's it, we all you i all of all of us especially in property circles and that entrepreneurial sort of you know property set of investors and small developers etc you know we're actually you know even though we know our stuff right we're actually taking relatively to the rest of the market actually fairly high levels of risk mm-hmm. right? and, and 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 it's very easy to be the optimist entrepreneur right okay uh, as opposed to the risk mitigating entrepreneur now, risk mitigating doesn't mean don't do it. It means de-risk it when you do it. Okay, and 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 this is really, really important. Um, and and you're exactly right. If you have, if you're if you're a small developer, you've got five five sites going on at the same same time. That's pretty small, medium sized developer, right? Okay, you know, a good, fairly good practice is probably having different lenders because one could get into a situation, and and actually, if you were concentrated. It, it could take you out, you know. So it's in, in, in all the things we do, and, and, and this is not just, you know, me thinking from from my standpoint as an SEO regulated business that I have to be have risk front and centre in our activities. It doesn't mean we don't do things. It means we do things very, very, uh, very, very rigorously and, and, and with with a risk mitigating mentality. And, and especially at the SME level, the old kind of um, adage from any sort of investment is the management the management of the asset management so with with us who is in control of that development and site because there's so much emphasis on them do a good job and that takes up that is a a huge part of of the kind of risk element of everything so i I think that's even more important at a a sme level than it is at, at at a larger level um just going back then on to uh, challenges of scaling you mentioned going from around 25 to 45 employees was, was incredibly difficult because the whole dynamic culture um, changed because like you said you went from people who were a bit of a jack of all trades into very specialist individuals a lot of people when I ask them the question of what's the hardest thing about scaling it's it's people management is, is, is probably the number one thing that comes out. Is, is that kind of what you're, what you're getting at? De- definitely. And, and, and this is one of the elements where there are many elements I bring in the experiences from, from all the businesses and sectors that I've seen historically. So, so early on in, early on in crowd property, I, I was on the board as a non-exec uh, uh, co-founder, right? And, and, in, and after our first significant equity, Raise. We've raised about four million in capital together. We raised around about November 2017, I think it was. We'd only we'd only funded about 10 million pounds. We were working for years on building out the tech and the proof of the systems and the proof of the business model and, and the composition, etc. But so, so so I so I dropped in to run it because we were ready to scale. And the we were about a team of 
fire. I think I might have been the sixth person, creative, generous, just to drive out our market opportunity. At least, and we knew we were going to rapidly grow the team because we just raised equity capital. Right. Mm -hmm. My first appointment, okay, was the people director. That person, okay, is, is still a board director now, and she had been at uh, Nationwide for 25, 30 years and seen so much in terms of people management, in terms of how we, how we grow people, how we develop people, how we put frameworks in place, okay, how we attract best, how we position best, all of these things, right? So very senior, and, and, and actually it's really interesting because I haven't found many startups that have done this, right? The, the last time I actually shared a, shared a Q&A sort of platform with, with Avin, who found this housekeeping, is, and I was telling this story, he goes, oh, so she has hired absolutely every single person we've got in this business, right? And the, and the people that have left, and, 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 and we've only we've had very, very few that's come through uh, the crowd uh, doors. Um, she's the guardian of our culture. She knows what the, what the team dynamic is and who would fit in the team dynamic and who equally, which is, a, which is as important, who would challenge in a healthy way that team dynamic right? and bring diversity and, 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 and difference into the team. And, and I guess that and, takes a very specialist type of kind of person or leader almost in a way because they've got to understand how that dynamic adapts as you go from your 25 people to the 45 and your jack of all trades yeah. to your specialists. And, and I think that's probably an incredibly difficult thing to, to be able to do. It's certainly something that I, I wouldn't have confidence in. Yeah. And, and, and one of the, you know, one of the, so, and, and that's, you know, she had, decades of experience and a big company doing, doing this was a perfect candidate also also it, it was really important at the time that i had the bandwidth personally to work on the strategy and strategic growth of the business that was my forte that's what i've done for clients yeah. years and years and years private equity funds growing their businesses and big corporates etc growing their businesses like i needed that bandwidth um to be able to drive that forward and not spend so much of my time which i know so many founders do with with uh, on, on the team growth side of things right yeah. and it's not because i was shirking it it's because i knew exactly where the, the majority of my resource my time where I, I think that has been a massive a massive you know sort of factor in how we've evolved as a business how we've grown our teams as a business. i think that one thing Another thing that is underestimated, I think, especially, I mean, you and I both live in London, um, and London's a wonderful city. The cost of living is high, salaries are high, etc. And it's big, big, big talent pool, but there's a lot of demand for that talent. Yeah. So we founded the business to set the business up in Birmingham. Right? And as a result of that, there's, there's, there's natural geographic benefits in, in, in real estate and you know, lots and lots of benefits. But actually, there's a lower cost of living, right? so salaries aren't as high. Right? And I have a, you know, we at CrowdProfit, we've got a team of 55 people, but if we were based in the capital, it would be less than half of that, right? and I would have a less well-resourced business. I would be growing less. I'd be investing less in, 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 in growth building and the tech build out, the infrastructure and the, and the competitive advantage of my business. So, you know, it's very easy for you to just set up your own business and the, 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 with the intent to scale it up 
in the wrong location, right? In an expensive location, whatever. No, I have nothing. I'm, I'm not saying anything, right? Against against London because it's a city I live in and love, right? Okay. And, and all this does is put me out because I spend Monday to Wednesday living up in Birmingham and I'm fine with that because, because it's not in a different country on the roads consulting, right? So, you know, it, it, yeah, that was really powerful and we're building a far better business as well. Um, and it, it doesn't mean, I'll, I'll also caveat that slightly as well, a lot of our institutions, and I make sure we are still very plugged into that, you cannot just go you know, just disappear and never visit the capital again, or never visit main, um, main sort of hubs of economic activity yeah. again, right? And sit in your own, own little worlds. Got to, you know, you've got to be in those markets where your customers, your suppliers, et cetera, are, okay? And it doesn't mean you need to have the biggest blitziest office in the most central location and the most expensive location, uh, et cetera. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then- but, um, but talent pool is really important. So, you, you know, our two dominant areas other than, uh, other than wider business services are our technology, software engineers, software engineers, so technology talent, we need a market that has great technology talent, and also property expertise uh, for, for both of those. Fantastic. And what are your kind of aspirations now for the next, I don't know, two to five years for crowd property? A lot of people ask me this, and a lot of people uh, frame that more directly often with uh, saying, what's your exit strategy? <laughs> so it's, you know, we don't have a hard exit. I, I know, you, you know, there's lots of ways that this business could evolve and, uh, and end up and, uh, and et cetera. And we've got, you know, as a, as, a, as a strategy guy, I've got very, very detailed strategies and think about, you know, clear pathways and roadmaps and get the team to buy into that. And so we're all on a mission. You know what that mission is, right? That's fundamental, number one. Number two is you don't, I, I, and this, this has some schools of thought, right? So some people, you know, I've heard many people, typically after they've exited, right? Yeah. A lot of people, a lot, a lot of people talk about end game and the exit, right? And I don't believe in that whatsoever. Right? I've worked with private equity funds and venture capital funds enough, okay, to know that if they are potential acquirers, they're watching these businesses because what they need is proprietary deal flow. So they're out there looking in the sectors they have hypotheses in and things like that. Okay, so I know people are watching this, right? Um, and I'm going to spend every second of my, which is, which is not far off every second of my life, right, given how hard I work, which, which is another issue, on, on building a bloody good business. Mm-hmm. Right? Just focus on that. Focus on building a bloody good business. And whatever happens, happens. And people are interested in what that is. So what does a good business mean to you? How do you measure if, something's, if a business is good or not? That evolves. That evolves all the time, you know, especially with the sustainability overlays and things like that that are very, very hot topics that are very important. But I guess more what, and more people. I guess what I'm trying to say is is does a good business to you mean it's valued higher by others? Or does it mean as the owner you you get a sense of accomplishment every day and you're excited to get out of bed and work in it? Or what 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 kind of where where is it going for you? It's it's a bit yeah, like I, I, if you, if you, if your business is a mountain, when you get to the top, what then? 
do you need to find yeah. a big mountain or to keep you to keep you kind of interested yeah. in what, what is it the great well fundamentally i i think what we are genuinely developing here a far better market leading global market leading place smaller medium-sized developers to fund their projects right more homes will get built more spend will be on the, uh, in the economy and labor materials and services etc etc right and the great thing about being an absolute specialist development finance player is that it's niche right that means we're brilliant at it we, that's all we do every day but it's a damn big niche right so we can expand and expand and expand so that mountain is massive Okay, so you can, um, you can expand vertically rather than horizontally, I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's exactly. You know, um, and 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 we are proving that our retention, you know, our client retention rate on the on the, on the developer side is, is is incredible. It's forty percent of our lending comes from uh, people in foreign ones. That's incredible when we're in such growth and acquisition mode, and customer acquisition mode, and, and putting more people, uh, bringing more people in as, as developers. Um, so we're very proud of that statistic. That shows value adding to our customers. And, and it also shows, also shows your customers are growing with you by the sounds of it yeah. as well, which is great. It, it, exactly, exactly. And we've always said, it's like, you, you know, I, I've, I've always had this sort of view that, you, you know, Small and medium-sized developer, and by the way, this is off the, off the back of our own experience and also a lot of focus groups and research and things like that. But broadly, a small developer will spend about a third of their time looking for sites, a third of their time building out those sites, and a third of their time faffing around with finance. So guess what? People can find uh, grow their businesses quicker and more profitably by spending more time on finding sites and delivering sites. Right? That's that has the wider benefits of more homes, etc. The other overlay is to it which which i find fascinating one of the things that i worked on a lot with with uh my private equity fund clients with, with their portfolio businesses was international expansion and international expansion is quite is, is more straightforward if you're a gillette yeah right because the, the you know the needs are similar they're not always the same and the position is not the same the communication needs to be different you need to localize the proposition etc australians Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they and, and and Australians have a there's a there's a wonderfully entrepreneurial grassroots investor and developer community there. And guess what? The banks are rubbish at serving it, right? And and that's and that's why you know May last year we launched in Australia, and and that's gaining really really strong traction. And what we're proving there. Is that this is an internationally relevant and internationally game-changing business in this specialist niche that happens to be massive and happens to be global. Fantastic. And in terms of the business now, what would you say is the biggest risk to your business and what are you doing to mitigate that? So we have, um, I mean, it's quite interesting because, you know, risk, as I said earlier, risk management, risk identification and mitigation is absolutely paramount to any business. But, but in the financial services business, you have much more commitment and responsibility on that. Um, so we have, you know, for example, we've, we've got on our board, we've got um, our former asset management CEO and former bank CEO uh, on our boards. Actually, the bank CEO CEO of multiple banks and basically founded and took to IPO, Audemore Bank, for example, which many people have heard of. It's pretty heavyweight. So we are applying 
the very yeah, the, the most rigorous financial services risk management because non-execs, non-execs, right? You know, especially non-execs who are as, who are as uh, grumpy and wizened as our as our. Uh, they have direct to liability, and so their non-execs uh, has a far greater focus right, on risk management and risk uh, risk identification, risk mitigation, okay, as as a nature to protect, right? Um, and, and especially with their backgrounds, right? So we're bringing the best in class financial services. So, you know, we've got all risk committees, board risk committees, the risk matrices, uh, you know, risk management agendas, risk mitigation agendas. And that's sort of, so, so we look at, 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 at everything across the business. We have prioritizing and hierarchy risk, you know, from, from, from cybersecurity, which is an ever-increasing um, uh, risk factor through to, you know, the, you know, fundamental credit risk, uh, through funding risk, through uh, regulatory risk, you know, all of these measures. Um, so it, it's actually, you know, it's actually, when you, when you really focus on this, you think, Jesus Christ, it's, 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 there's so many things to manage just in the risk side, let alone the growth side, right? But, but the crucial thing is that's why those governance processes and requirements and governance, UK governance code, which, which whilst we're not a listed business that needs to, uh, needs to follow every letter of the UK governance, uh, corporate governance code, we do, by definition, the people we have involved. So uh, it's very hard to pin down individual uh, elements of that, uh, of that question. I think, you've, I think you've answered it well enough there in terms of kind of processes and having the right people assigned to kind of be, be responsible for, for, for. You could, you could argue, you could argue a biggest, the, the biggest risk to any business is the risk you're not talking about. Well, absolutely. Right. And, that's, and that's normally it. It's the one you don't see coming, isn't it? So, and yeah. like, I'm conscious that I'm, I'm, I'm taking up a lot of your time so i'm just going to ask the final question and that is um what is it that you know now that you didn't know or you wish you knew when you were kind of coming out of the vodka red bull business out of uni and uh looking maybe to go into finance prop tech um property industry then and and, and in the same kind of element what advice would you give to people wanting to step into that business now? I think um, I think it's hard not to be trite around these sort of things. Um, I mean, I mean, very sort of, you know, very niche and tactical. You know, a, a couple of my prop tech investments have actually have absolutely shot the lights out, and so I wish I'd piled in more. Um, but, but in reality, in reality. Most things are a portfolio. I definitely think. I definitely think there's a there's a real there's a really careful balance that, by definition, every single person in the world will get wrong because it's almost you know, it's impossible to publicly get right. Okay, is is through your invest. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk a bit from a property investor perspective, given that that's the, yeah. the circles we're we're in. Is is you know the right investment? You, you know. It's not a it's not a rush. It's not a shiny penny sort of chase the shiny pennies or, or all of that. It's you know there's 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 good diversified methodical investments that you can make and have confidence to say yes 
and have confidence to say no. So the quicker you can get to a, a, a no, almost, you know, I, you know, if you don't end up with a no, it's a yes, right? Um, you, you know, I, I think that's really important. You, you know, could I have scaled a bit more on some of my earlier portfolio ideas, property ideas, investment ideas? And yes, definitely. Have I learned to bucket load from it? Yes. But the other linked things, that's a shiny penny point, which I think is the, my big picture uh, sort of point, is, is, which is not something I've done absolutely, you know, particularly wrong, but uh, I, I've used this phrase within business, especially early on, which is you don't see Tiger Woods playing much tennis, or you could say Federer playing much golf, right? Yeah. Focus, right? Focus. Be the bloody best, right? Be brilliant, okay? Just get so good at something and then roll it, focus on it, cookie cutter it, do, you know, do whatever, okay? Because because that way you get competitive advantage right? and when you've got competitive advantage you can you can you can do more of it you can monetize more of it you can raise capital off it you can do you know all of these different things right i think focus is absolutely paramount and, and there's always a danger when there's bucket loads of different things in front of you especially when you're you're entrepreneurial in property seeing different opportunities etc etc it's like you're thinking thinking strategically about it what do I want to be great at? What should I start doing, learn, go deep, be better and better and better and I can scale it and, and things like that. Not everyone wants to scale the hell out of everything, right? Okay, but, 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 but focus, you know, it may be that focus means that, say for example, you, you know, became utterly brilliant at five-bed HMOs, right? If you keep doing five-bed HMOs, right, you've got basically two options. You could buy, okay, you get better and better and more efficient and more efficient. I mean, you're better than anyone else. Or the other way you can look at it is that each HMO you do is progressively easier because we have a team, you have a you know, funding provider, you have all of these sort of things, right? And you get some more free time. You know, so it's not all about scaling the hell out of everything, right? You know, but, but there are huge benefits of that focus. Absolutely, yeah. Very, very good advice. Mike, thanks so much for giving up, up your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure all the listeners will too. So thanks again. Thank you.